Hi everyone, welcome to another edition of the Enantec Podcast. I'm your host Ian Cutchis and this is Podcast 35. Today I'm joined with our editor for laptops, Brett House. Hello everyone. And today we're going to talk about some stuff that's been happening in August, um, uh, end of July, August. It's been a big time in the PC world, from laptops to desktops and everything else in between. First thing we're going to talk about today is uh, Windows 10. Uh, Windows 10 launched July 29th. Brett's been testing it for quite a while, and uh, he posted his long, long, long review on Windows 10 this week, this past week. 26 pages, 22,000 words. We're going to stick a link in the uh, description um, so everybody can go read it, and I highly encourage it. Though I will admit, my Windows testing has been limited to DirectX 12 um, benchmarks, so I've not actually had a chance to get to grips with it much, especially with IDF this month. I've just not had time to update my laptop and anything else to Windows 10, so I'll, I'll let Brett take the lead. Brett, what, what is Windows 10? Well, it's going to be probably the last version of Windows ever, which uh, I guess is why they jumped to 10 and skipped 9. Um, they've decided to switch their entire structure and model and just uh, update going forward rather than a new version, new major launch every couple of years. Uh, of course, that uh, that can always change in the future. Um, I guess the the biggest thing about Windows 10 uh, is that it's a free upgrade for the first time ever, um, which and not only is is it being free important, but the fact that the upgrade is automated and fairly stable, I'm not going to say it's 100% stable, there's been a few glitches here and there with people who upgrade, including our own uh, Joshua Ho, who couldn't boot his laptop anymore, but he sorted that out. Um it's been pretty impressive the first day after launch they announced that they had uh, I think it was 14 million installs within like a day or something like that and then just this week uh they tweeted that it's now on over 75 million devices in less than a month because today it'll be a month tomorrow as we're recording this so uh to compare that to previous versions of Windows Windows 7 is probably the most successful version of Windows ever I think it would be hard for people to argue with that. It still holds something like 60% usage share. And it sold 60 million licenses in the first two months. So to be 75 million in the first month and the fact that it's this is actually a, a change in reporting structure. This is now installed on 75 million, not licenses sold into the channel, which is how they typically report this because that's how they get their unit sales. So it's been pretty successful. Um, Windows 8... They re- they reported 40 million licenses sold in the first month, but most of that was into the channel and people didn't buy more copies for quite a few years. The OEMs had enough after 40 million to last them a while. Sales were certainly not what they hoped. Um, it's gonna be, uh, it's gonna be pretty important, obviously, for Microsoft. This is a huge rollout. They need to get everybody on board. So they're, they're being fairly aggressive to the point where People are probably not 100% happy with the the pop-ups saying upgrade now to Windows 10 on your desktop. Um, there's going to be a a lot of people who aren't happy about that, but it's uh, I guess they feel it's important enough for their future that uh, that they need to just do that and and accept the bad press and the bad word of mouth that people are are upset. I'm, Ian, I'm sure you've got the uh, notice on your desktop now. At, at IDF. 
um, every time I opened my laptop for another talk, you know, to take down notes and everything else, it kept coming up. And I was like, no, no, go away. I'm not going to install Windows 10 during the middle of an Intel talk. Um, wait until I get home. But um, for, for the UK this weekend, it's a bank holiday weekend. So we've got, um, we've got Monday off. So I'm, I'll probably give myself time, you know, to ease into the upgrade. I mean, it's not something you want to sort of leave running and then have to grab your laptop and go to go and work and stuff. You want to make sure that everything's sorted by the time you use it. But I, I'll, I'll get to it eventually. Yeah, I would, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> you don't want to just uh, reboot it in the middle and then you'll have all sorts of problems. But the uh, the upgrade is it takes about an hour. I've no, I would say an average of an hour it depends on the machine. Some of the faster ones I have here are done it in thirty minutes or less. But uh, I actually upgraded. Um, we reviewed the HP Stream 11 back in December, and that's a very, you know, inexpensive. It was, uh, 199 with, uh, dual core Celeron, which is actually Atom based. So it's pretty slow. It's only got 32 gigs of eMMC memory. So, uh, I had to free up some space on the, uh, on the drive for it to download. I, I decided not to use my USB upgrade on that. I wanted to, to go through the actual experience that uh, an end user would get. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it said I need nine gigs of space free and it only has five. So it pops up a little dialogue and says in the insert a USB and it'll move the old recovery partition off onto the USB. And it says keep that tucked away in case you ever want to go back to 8.1. So it's, uh, that was pretty impressive because I was wondering what they were going to do with these very low storage devices. But when I saw the pop-up saying that it was ready, I thought, well, this is, this is a good chance to try that out. And, and it went perfectly seamless. It took, it took an hour on that one. It was obviously a pretty slow machine. Um, but I've upgraded, uh, quite a few devices already. And I've been maybe fortunate to have zero issues so far. So with the HP Stream 11, that's a device you purchased for your son. I was going to say, how, how is he finding Windows 10? He, uh, it was actually pretty hilarious because he was super excited that it was free. He was like, that's going to be free. I don't have to pay for that. And I was like, yeah, it's free. So anyway, yeah, he was pretty excited about it and he's been using it now. I upgraded, uh, the tablet that my daughter uses too last night. So she, her eyes grew wide when I said I'm upgrading it to Windows 10, which is pretty funny because she's six years old and doesn't know anything about Windows. But anyway, they're both happy campers now. So. I guess it was successful in our house. Well, the the, the fact that um, Microsoft have done it as a, an, a free over-the-air upgrade um, and essentially refocusing their uh, their business model around Windows to the App Store that's a, that's pretty significant. I mean, we had the App Store in Windows 8 and Windows 8.1, but I'll be honest, I've I never used the App Store in Windows 8 or 8.1, so. Actually, something that they discussed too this week in their tweets when they said there were 75 million devices sold is that um, already in Windows 10, they're seeing six times the number of App Store downloads on Windows 10 than they saw on Windows 8.1, um, which I mean, it's pretty impressive considering it's only been out for a month. I mean, and that'll be per machine, of course, but still, um, it's more prominent and the apps should be more useful. We'll see. They... Uh, the way that Windows 8.1 laid everything out was very information sparse, I suppose. It was, it was okay for tablet use, but, you know, the majority of their, uh, infrastructure is all going to be on desktops and laptops. So when they focused so heavily on tablets and then that never really materialized it, obviously they had to change their structure. So, and they did change their, uh, 
The upgrade is free for a year only, and after that you'll have to pay for it. So if anybody's thinking, there's no, you don't need to do it today, but uh, certainly you want to do it at least before that window expires. And you could always roll back, and then you'll still have your upgrade available. It, the upgrade um, attaches a, in the cloud, it'll store a device ID based on your hardware with with your key, and then the next time that you go to install Windows 10, it should automatically activate with no with no other work. So uh, waiting is is understandable for people that you know there's no there's no need to rush on this. It's it's good, but it's still rough. So if you want to wait, that's perfectly acceptable. I think uh, a year is a long time, although it'll come up quick. So. One of the things that I want to point out that um, if people haven't been following up with Windows 10 news is the fact that Windows Media Player is no longer part of Windows 10. Uh, no, actually, Media Player is. It's Media Center is not. Right, okay. So cl- cl- clarify the difference between those two and what you now have to pay for, which you didn't have to before. It's essentially DVD playback, right? Yeah, so uh, the playback of DVDs is not built into Windows anymore. Um, it requires a licensing fee. And that fee is not transferable on the upgrade. So Microsoft would have to pay for it again on Windows 10 for you. And honestly, the amount of people that play back DVDs is getting smaller and smaller. So it's less important. So Media Center is their overarching TV recording software, but it also did DVD playback. So they've removed Media Center due to not enough use. And, you know, that's sad because I used it. I liked it. But it's gone. And the... They have a DVD player in the in the store now, which you can get for free if you had Media Center on Windows 8.1 or Windows 7. You can download it for free, apparently, although I haven't tried that. Uh, and if you don't have it for free, it's $15, so don't buy it because it's way too much for a DVD player. Well, hang on. 15 bucks, you can buy an uh, internal you know, optical disk drive that probably comes with DVD playback software anyway. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the thing, and there's kind of been a lot of big deal made about this, but almost every DVD player comes with some sort of software to play it anyway, so it's really... I, I don't feel that it's it's a big deal, but anyway, the people that liked Media Center are obviously not going to be happy, and, and I understand that. It was, uh, it was pretty amazing software, especially, you know, 2005 or whatever, when, you, you know, you'd record two or three or four stations of TV. Um, but that that's kind of going away too. People are m- moving away from cable TV, and it's uh, unfortunately, even though people like myself used Media Center, it, you know, it never really caught on even when recording TV was popular. So now it's gone, and uh, we will mourn its passing. However, a lot of it's going to be shifted to the Xbox One, which is kind of more where it makes sense anyway. Um, that's already hooked up to your TV. So we'll see. That's going to evolve over time. Uh, we've had a couple of posts on the Xbox going to gain DVR support, and uh, you should be able to stream the TV to any Windows 10 PC, and I would assume over iOS and Android using the uh, Xbox Smart Glass app. I'm sure that will all be enabled in the near future. Um, early next year, I think, is the timeline for that. So as long as everybody updates their home Wi-Fi to 802.11ac, should be okay. Uh, I don't even think you need that. You can stream. I was actually doing the game streaming with 1080p, 60 frames per second, and it was only taking like 18 megabits per second. So, I mean, you don't want to do that over over wireless G or something, but uh, 
yeah, streaming streaming TV is probably not going to be too demanding, but yeah, I would I, I like to do wired where I can, so um, it's always best to have that, especially for the Xbox itself. If you can run it wired, at least you're not uh, interfering with its broadcast. So, so with Windows 10, when somebody installs it, what's the first thing they're going to notice that's different to Windows 8.1? The very first thing, of course, is going to be the lock screen. It's different. Um, Windows 8 had uh, a totally different look, and now they've gone to your your picture now is a circle instead of a square. You know, big deal, right? But uh, it, it looks a little different. Uh, I don't really like the circles myself, but anyway, it's it's nothing to to uh, stop using the operating system for. But obviously, the biggest thing that people will notice, uh, especially if they use Windows 8, was the return of the start menu, which you know, mysteriously went away in Windows 8. Um, at the time, you know, you could see the argument to get rid of it. The tablets were touted as being the next PC computing platform. They were going to take over desktops. So maybe they put too much effort into that, and then that all failed because tablets have not really materialized in sales. Um, certainly not going to take over desktops anytime soon. Uh, oh, and earlier you had mentioned that they changed the revenue model to the App Store, and it's going to be a free upgrade one. It's it's true that they they're shifting their revenue to that. However, uh, the upgrade is free, but purchasing new copies of the of the OS is still going to be the same cost as the previous one. So they're not completely abandoning that revenue model. OEMs will still have to pay for Windows for new machines, um, so it's not going to be completely new. Um, moving on from that, uh, with the start menu, there's a new browser edge, which we've gone over a few times, so we won't go over it again, but, uh, it's a little rough too. It's, it's going to be a common theme that everything is a little bit rough. Um, the big change to windows overall is their servicing model. They're moving to windows as a service. So as I said at the top of the podcast, this could be the last version of windows ever in the fact that the number won't change because going on, going forward, they're going to just be rolling out feature updates uh, on a you know a timetable over the next couple of months. There'll be new features. Uh, we've already seen two insider previews post-launch uh, with just small things. You know, you know UI changes. They, they one of the big complaints of Windows 10 when it launched is the uh, all the context menus when you right-click. Depending on where you are, if you're in the start menu, you get a certain menu. If you're on the taskbar, you get a different one. If you're on the desktop, you get a different one. So in the latest one that they launched, they, they're trying to make that all the same, which is nice. I mean, if they're at the point where they're doing that, it's uh, that's a good thing. I don't think they have too many engineers working on it, though, but um, it's, it's good to see that they're actually looking at that stuff that traditionally they maybe haven't looked at. Um, Hopefully in the future we'll see things like the device manager finally get updated to a new model and not look terrible like it was made in Windows 98 or 95 is what it looks like right now. Um, so with the new servicing model, Windows as a service, probably the most controversial part of this part is that home users can't defer updates anymore, although they can defer certain app updates um, they can't defer security patches or feature updates as a home user. If you have Windows Pro, you can defer feature updates, but not security updates. 
And that's a pretty big change from before when you could just tell Windows Update to do whatever you wanted it to do. And there's certainly a big part of the, maybe not a big part, but there's a loud part of the population of Windows users who like that control and they want to do it themselves. So, and I understand that. Um, I think that they should appease those people by adding in the ability to defer because a very small portion of people are ever going to do that. It's going to be, you know, technical people that want the control. The average mom and pop, they don't want to deal with that. They'll just leave it automatic. So they can appease those people and still meet their goals. So I hope they do that. For businesses, of course, they have to do that. They have to have a way to defer it. So they're going to release, and there's there's not a lot of details yet, but Windows Update for Business will be the method that you can control those updates. Or if you're traditional enterprise with uh, Windows Server Update Services, that will still function as well. So you'll be able to, you know, roll out exactly the patches you want in the timetable that you want, allowing you to do testing against your apps, make sure that there's no major issues. Um, the problem, of course, is their track record has to be 100% if they're going to do these, you know, no deferral updates, and it hasn't been. So you can't prove the future, but they can't have, and it was only last year that they rolled out a patch that, you know, caused a lot of problems in August of 2014. So it's uh, it's not that long ago in history that they've, you know, had issues with updates. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody manages to, you know, disable updates on home. I'm sure I've seen a few tweets of people talking about this. Well, of course you can do it. You can actually disable the Windows Update service uh, if you want to, but then you get no patches at all. I would like them to add into the GUI the ability for just everybody to defer updates. Um, it'll appease the people that are upset and it really won't have an impact if it's, you know, two, three weeks, even a month, uh, after the updates come out. It, you know, it's, it's a tricky thing it, with security updates. Of course, you want everybody to be patched so that they're not vulnerable. But for the people that want to turn it off, um, they, they, I mean, it's their machine. They should have the right. Of course, the other thing that you want to avoid is, uh, like Samsung where they decided to, completely disable Windows Update uh, using their own software, and then you just didn't get updates. So uh, that's never a good situation either. But I don't think you can use that as a as an example of what not to do because well, Samsung is hardly even in the PC industry anymore, so they kind of stepped away. So my thought here is um, certain third-party antivirus software can be a little bit aggressive when it comes to Windows updates. Um, so... Now that we have Windows as a service and Win Windows Update itself can essentially add features and at some point an antivirus is going to say, hey, that feature decides to, you know, insert data into memory it shouldn't be, so I'm going to block it and then everything screws up. It's, it's, so it's going to be a, it's going to be an up and down journey over the next few years, I think, with that. Uh, yeah, exactly. I think so. And I mean, it'll get sorted out over time. Uh, I've heard the same thing about antivirus with the update itself because it tries to change the, uh, the boot order, uh, when it does the upgrade. And if you have certain antivirus, it might cause a problem there. So, um, I think that'll all get sorted out over time, which is another reason maybe just to hold off on the upgrade. If you're not anxious to jump to Windows 10 like I was, then, uh, there's no real need to jump right now and you can just let that go for a while. Um, I, we should talk about the, uh, the new universal Windows apps, which is a big change over Windows 8. So Windows 8 came with the uh, 
the store, of course, and it had WinRT as a runtime. So with the Windows Store, uh, they've changed it to Universal Windows Apps. So they finally named the apps, which is good because they were previously called Metro, and then they had the whole thing with uh, Metro in the UK, and they they didn't want to fight it. So anyway, they was kind of named nothing forever. So now they're Universal Windows Apps, are the ones in the store, and those are meant to run on pretty much anything that runs Windows 10, which is going to be IoT, phones, desktops, laptops, tablets, uh, Surface Hub, which is the giant uh, TV on a wall, 55 and 70 inch, um, and uh, HoloLens, which is the augmented reality headset that they're developing. So Universal Windows apps will run on all of those. Um, I've, uh, I'm digging up a little bit more about this, but they now have native code. Uh, they call it .NET native as one of their features. So it'll, it should improve the performance of those apps. Quite substantially, I think I read something like startup time is 60% faster than running it as a as managed code, which is how it has run in the past. So if it was C sharp, um, so the, this whole store model is going to be important going forward. They really need to, uh, if they want to have apps in the store, they they need a user base. Obviously, they've kind of been passed over by developers over the past couple of years, where the apps don't come or the ones that do are very lacking in features and not updated. So by getting a user base that actually uses the store, which is why they need everybody on Windows 10 and they can't have another XP situation where people just don't upgrade, which is the whole point of the free upgrade. Uh, it's not because they're stealing your information. It's because they need you to be in their store. Otherwise, if they don't have a platform, uh, they're going to, they're going to fail and, you know, wither away. So it's, it's extremely important to them. Um, the Windows Store is probably the biggest thing for Microsoft. We'll see if the apps come. Obviously, we can't tell the future. There's been some big apps that have arrived already, so it's promising, but um, it's kind of the future of their phone and mobile situation, too, so uh, it's too early to say if it's going to work out. Um, with Windows 10, they've added the ability to import uh, Object- Objective-C from uh, iOS apps into Visual Studio and compile them into into uh, native code for Windows 10. So they're they're trying to make it easier. They call them bridges. They're building bridges to help people, help developers move to their platform easily, rather than you know have to relearn an entire new uh, set of languages and stuff. So so Windows uh, Office 365 is already part of the App Store, and I assume that's going to be native as well. But then things like you know Adobe Photoshop and you know, video editing software and you know professional grade software now they don't have to sell it as a package that you buy. You can just buy your license and download it straight from the App Store, which is I think what Windows is trying to do because or what Microsoft's trying to do because then you then they get a cut of the sale. Yeah, that's a good point, and of course uh, there's other advantages too. Um, it's easier to get the apps because they're available in the store. The apps will be in a sandbox, so they'll be more secure. There's quite a few advantages to that, and that actual the I, th- I think what you're referring to is the the old Win32 apps, the desktop apps. Uh, that's not quite in the store yet. I think that's coming early next year. They're going to be adding that to the store. But then, yeah, so you'll be able to get Photoshop through the store. You know, Microsoft will take a cut. I'm sure Adobe will get a pretty good rate. Um, but <laughs> the, uh, it'll be easier to get the apps. The apps will be updated through the store automatically. So, 
Uh, it's quite a few advantages. I think they're going to use leverage their app V, which is uh, their virtualization for apps that they've been running for years on the server. So it's it's tra- tested and well known already. Um, it'll be exciting when that comes. I think that's going to be a, a nice feature for Windows 10. But one of the things that is turning people off is uh, a lot of privacy concerns with Windows 10. Um, there's been a lot of talk in the media over privacy in Windows 10, and people are, you know, concerned that it's, you know, logging too much information, and, and those concerns are valid. Um, in the comments of, of my review, there was quite a bit of discussion about this. Uh, some people are quite upset. Some people don't really care too much, but um, a lot of it is, uh, there's a lot of confusion out there, and, and that's kind of partly the media's fault. Um, we haven't discussed it very much, so uh, it's kind of our fault too because we haven't really brought it up before, but other sites have reported um, you know, certain things about the uh, Windows 10 user li- end user license agreement, uh, but it's actually, they've taken the the text itself out of either the technical preview one, which has changed, or the Microsoft Services one, which is, covers their online services such as uh, Outlook.com, Xbox Live, and is a lot of confusion because the Windows 10 EULA doesn't really say anything about um, a lot of privacy stuff. It's, it's It just covers the OS. It's the services that you're going to launch through it that are going to be the ones that collect your data. And, of course, when you use webmail, your email is stored on their servers. So they're responsible for it. Here's the privacy agreement. And um, I would say that most people use webmail now. So... Uh, a lot of this privacy stuff is a little bit over the top. Um, I understand that people don't want their machine logging stuff, and there's no way to turn all that off in Windows 10, which is, I think, unfortunate and a problem, and hopefully one that will be addressed. Can't you just disable a service? <laughs> well, uh, you can do things through group policy, but um, I'm not sure if those work at all and group policy is only available on pro and up it's not available on home um in the privacy uh frequently asked questions that i linked to in our review uh the one thing that you can't really disable completely is diagnostics so you can set it from basic to intermediate to full uh it of course by default is on full which is full diagnostics including you know if you're if you're in Word typing up your thesis and Word crashes, um, it's going to snapshot memory and possibly send some of your document up to them for, and they can see what happened. So you can turn it to basic as this is the lowest, but it still will have diagnostic information. It, w- it won't be as much or um, there won't be memory snapshots of your documents or anything like that on basic, but it's still there. So just like the Windows update thing, they could just silence this by allowing people to turn that off completely. And it would, it would be a very small portion of the population that would do it. But they have valid concerns, and they can't turn it off. So it would be very easy to do this. I don't know if they're going to do it. My guess is that they're not, which is unfortunate. And maybe this will all go away in the next six months to a year, and we'll turn our heads at another problem. But... uh so my question at this point is, um, how often does it contact Microsoft servers with the data it's logging? Is it constant, or is it just every now and again? 
Well, it's depending on where you're set, but of course, Cortana is going to use a lot of uh, of web services to do its searching, and it's going to do it for contacts, calendar, all that. You can t- you can turn all that stuff off, but it's still if you do a search, even just a local search, apparently it uh, sends some machine IDs up, and uh, it's it's listed in the basic diagnostics what is going up. Um, it says it's data that is vital to the operation of Windows, uh, keeps Windows and apps running properly. Um, I think that's a bit vague. So you can see why people have concerns. Um, having basic reporting on as the lowest option is is too much for some people. My thing is here, can you not set up a firewall to block outgoing communication to the IPs that it's specifically sending to Microsoft? Um, of course you can, but should you have to, I guess, is the uh, is the question. Um, you shouldn't have to. Well, uh, yeah. No, I see that point. So, uh, another thing that came up in the news is uh, it's 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 funny and it's not funny. I think it's a state of uh, how things work in the world these days. But there's been some reports uh, about family safety, which is a feature in Windows, where you can turn it on for a child account, and it will send you weekly reports of. Uh, you know, time usage on the machine, uh, what websites they've gone to, what apps they're using, how long they've used them. It can be pretty detailed if you want it that way. Um, <laughs> it's funny because it's come up as a as a Windows 10 feature that, you know, the OS is spying on you once again. Um, it's actually been in Windows since Windows Vista, so it's not new. Um, and it's an opt-in feature. So you have to set up a child account. So I'm not really sure why people are getting upset about this, but uh, once again, it's uh, <laughs> it's media misreporting and not uh, understanding what it is and how long it's been there and what it's used for. So uh, it's unfortunate. So does this family safety feature, when you're essentially uh, logging your kids' information, does that require access out to the internet? Does it email you the report or does it just pop up when you log in onto your account? It does email you the, the report. So yes, it certainly does contact the, uh, the internet. And with Windows 10, they've actually revamped family safety so that the child has to have a Microsoft account too. So there's certainly some people concerned about that. Uh, the reason is that, um, by moving all this to the cloud, you can, and I've done this myself, you can set it all up for that person and for that child. And no matter what device that they log into, those settings will go with them. And their screen time allowances will be the same no matter which device they're on. So, I mean, I don't have any, I, I do have this running for my, for my kids, but I don't have the screen time or anything like that turned on. It's nice to see, you know, how much uh, I'm letting them use the computer every week. Uh, although it's hard for them to argue when, when I use it as much as I do for my job. But, uh, <laughs> All this data logging and keeping everything in the cloud. Um, ju- just to be clear, we can use Windows 10 offline for years and years and years, and it'll be fine. Uh, yes, for sure. So, uh, of course, one of the things that uh, that I was reading is that when you open an app in Windows, it sends it sends a packet off to Microsoft, and you know, and a, the somebody looked at the URL, and it's actually ensuring that that app is licensed. So, if you're not online, it's going to work. There's no problems, but if you're online, it's going to check and make sure that this machine is still valid to have that app. Um, that's actually one thing 
that they've changed is that the App Store, you can only install an app now up to 10 times instead of uh, 81 times. So it's it's a pretty big difference. So anyway. Android and iOS, there's a f- there's a quite a few apps on both of those where um, it'll contact a license server every time you open it anyway, and it won't let you open it when you're offline. Um, for example, I, I play Kyrosoft games on my Android smartphone, and uh, it needs to be able to access that license file from the in- from the internet. So when I'm on a plane, I can't I can't play that game because I don't have access to the internet. But um, you're saying that if that situation happens in Windows 10, I should be able to play the game no problem, which is good at least. Uh, yes, for sure. Uh, unless the app developer itself says that you need to have internet access to even use the app. But if it's an offline app, there would be no need for that. So yeah, no, it'll work just fine. Um, yeah, there'd be no problem there. Speaking about games, um, obviously Windows 10 is geared towards DirectX 12, and they've changed the driver model, Windows uh, WDDM, from 1.1 to 2.0. Now, I know you got Ryan to uh, write some stuff in your review about this, but um, what does that mean for the end user, ultimately? Um, it's actually really good news for the end user. WDDM2 uh, offers quite a bit of features, and yes, I did have Ryan, so thanks, Ryan, for writing that stuff up. He's uh, he's certainly the expert on that stuff, so I wanted to to leverage him where I could. Uh, WDDM2 fixes a lot of problems that have been plaguing Windows for years, actually. Uh, one of the big ones being uh, different DPIs on multi-monitors. Um, now, the way that they did it in Windows 8.1 is that you would set the DPI level of your main monitor, and then the other one would be scaled based on that, but it wouldn't run at its own DPI level. So if you had a really high DPI laptop and you plugged it into a monitor, which is a standard 92 DPI or whatever it is, uh, apps would not scale as well as they should. So I actually don't have multi-monitor myself. I need to get another couple monitors. Maybe this is something I'll have you test. But uh, although you have all the same DPI levels anyway on your on your 4K monitors, but uh, it actually should fix a lot of problems that people have had with DPI levels in Windows. Uh, another thing that it fixes is that when you use a laptop and you want to project the display onto a, a projector, for instance, at a presentation. Um, the projector would always be the same level uh, as the laptop, and it would just clone the display. But with WDDM2 now, it can actually run the projector at its own native resolution. So there's quite a few little perks there. Of course, DirectX 12, um, I'm not an expert on it, but it looks like it's going to be pretty significant for gaming as far as being able to leverage resources Um Pretty excited to try out some of the new games. Uh, I know at Build they showed off Final Fantasy, and uh, they had it running right on the on the projector itself, and it was looked pretty impressive. Uh, have you had any chance to try out uh, what was that DirectX 12 game that came last week? Um, Ashes of the Singularity, built by uh, Oxide Games and published by Stardock. Um, they released a essentially a benchmark to. Um, to reviewers, and I'm going to skip over the... There was some controversy with how NVIDIA implements anti-aliasing and some settings, and there were some arguments back and forth, but basically this is just the... the what, what, what do they call it? The pre-beta 
edition of the game. So the engine itself is the same as the Star, the engine that powered the Star Swarm demo, which we, um, which is a pure synthetic benchmark, which we tested earlier in the year. But, uh, but the, the, the engine powering Ashes of Singularity that, the main bit of the game, the main bit they still have to do with the game is actually the game part. So they've done the engine, they've done a lot of the models, they've done a lot of the interactions. It's just essentially the storyline and the scenarios. Um, so reviewers got a, a pre-beta version a couple of weeks ago. It was, it was, they gave it out to us three days before IDF. So neither Ryan nor I had time to, uh, to test extensively. Plus it's pre-beta, so it's nowhere near final and drivers are still six months out. But we, you know, we, what we've been told with the game is that it should be, you know, turn of the year, whether that's before Christmas or after Christmas, we don't know. Though we, during IDF, we did speak to a few people and they're expecting, you know, maybe half a dozen DirectX 12 games by Q1 next year or during Q1 next year. You know, and this time next year we should see a good dozen, maybe two dozen even. Um, whether they'll all be fully exploiting DirectX 12 or not is is one thing. The big thing that I think with DirectX 12 that people might not realize is that uh, a lot of the impetus of improving performance is now in the hands of the game developer rather than the driver team. So over previous years, we've known the driver teams at both AMD and NVIDIA and, and also at Intel. They can implement optimizations on a per game level in their drivers. So if something happens in the game, the driver can detect it, you know, compile the right code for their architecture and off it goes. DirectX 12 puts more, means that the developer requires more effort on that front. So this extends to things like uh, SLI and Crossfire are now going to be game-dependent rather than driver-dependent. Features like a multi-adapter, so being able to use two different graphics cards from companies or having your AMD graphics with your AMD APU um, also helping in the games, um, that's also going to be game-dependent. Um, so what we'll probably see on that front is any game that's built with one of the popular engines so whether it's the uh, the oxide engine or whether it's the unreal engine which will be updated or whether you know when unity gets DirectX 12 updates and everything else those will most likely be the sli and crossfire able games whereas uh, with indie developers it's going to be hit and miss basically because obviously an indie developer can't donate 20 people for 10 weeks to work on SLI in their game. It's just going to be one person. So all the features of DirectX 12 on that front, the sort of super high end is, is essentially going to be limited to those, uh, to those big engine developers. But again, one of the big things DirectX 12 is going to be aimed for is uh, virtual reality. So we're going to see games that want to use virtual reality are going to have to turn to the APIs and the engines that support virtual reality. And we're no doubtedly going to see a lot of graphics car, graphics related technologies around virtual reality, like, um, you know, adjustment of Z buffers and being able to deal with distorted views and rendering coming out over the next few months as well. So, DirectX 12 
is going to be Windows 10 only, of course. So, uh, unfortunately, Windows 7 is going to stick in, uh, stick to DirectX 11. So, with the ashes of the singularity benchmark we have, um, I haven't actually run it on Windows 10 in DirectX 12 mode yet, but I have run it in, um, on my Windows 7 machine in DirectX 11. And it's a three minute benchmark and it's, it's, it's kind of fun, you know, uh, busy scenes with lots of firepower and then, you know, basic f- scenes where you're just, seeing a few units it's a real-time strategy game so um you know think command and conquer uh but with a lot more firepower uh one of the things that i'm pretty excited for with windows 10 and uh direct x12 is the gaming situation um it's kind of an exciting time in the pc space for that it seems like uh you know with virtual reality and the gaming sector I think video card sales themselves have fallen over the last year, if I'm not mistaken. But there were some recent numbers for the last quarter saying they were down 10, percent but that was that was a combination of factors. Q2 is usually a, a low year for graphics, a low quarter for graphics cards. Plus, the big cards that were released weren't necessarily uh, either in stock, or there wasn't a big title launch either to push them. So that sort of 10 percent low, 10 percent lower for Q2 year on year. Um, it's probably just m- masking the fact that Q2 wasn't necessarily a great quarter for graphics card releases or game releases, but um, it should, with the DirectX 12 games coming out, it should pick up. But anyway, that's an aside. Uh, wait until they start selling VR. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> VR is coming, so Windows 10 is here and ready. Uh, I think that's pretty much it on Windows 10. I mean, obviously there's a ton of stuff to cover every can't possibly all go over in the podcast. Uh, check out the review. I put a lot of time into that one. Uh, it's it's pretty big. So go read a section a night or something and enjoy it for the next month or so. And and uh, and let's let's move on from uh, from Windows 10. Well, well, actually, actually, I do. I don't want to go back to one thing. Um, given that esports games, you know, League of Legends, Dota, Hearthstone, Heroes of the Storm, all those CS:GO, if Something like Rocket League gets proper esports backing, and they develop that in a DirectX 12 environment. That could actually be pretty funky, I think. Yeah, actually, it really should, and um, because of the, I would say the average esports title is not very demanding, which is probably why they're so popular, of course. Uh, but moving them to DirectX 12 would let them be more demanding on the same hardware. So, uh, actually, that could be pretty exciting. Well, like I say, uh, I'm not sure if you've uh, been following Rocket League, but it seems to be selling a, a few million, and uh, some of the YouTube videos are quite impressive. It's essentially playing uh, football or soccer, however you want to call it, with cars. But uh, you know, t- give give a uh, give a 15 to 19 year old an APU plus, say, an R7 graphics card, DirectX 12, and uh, fine, play on any monitor you like, I guess. Yeah, exactly. It's actually, I think it's pretty exciting times for gaming. Uh, you know, not that long ago we were talking about, well, not us, but, you know, Steam, Steam OS and all that stuff. But, uh, I guess that's stuck in Valve time too. It seems to always be constantly delayed, although, uh, it finally looks like it is coming out, but, uh. Just in time for the holidays. Yeah. Well, we'll see, right? <laughs> it was also supposed to be out last year by the holidays, so. Uh, anyway, yeah, the reasoning for it was, uh, Valve not happy with Windows 8 and the App Store and they want to do their own thing, which is understandable. So, but, uh, yeah, with DirectX 12, uh, it looks like Microsoft's 
finally looking at gaming again. Um, the gaming sector is one of the few vibrant ones, I think, in the PC space and drives performance. So I think it's good for all of us. And yes, speaking of gaming, um, I guess I should speak about Skylake now. Yeah, of course. Let's talk about Skylake. This has been very anticipated. So, so Skylake is, um, for those that don't know, it's Intel's new processor architecture. Um, it's technically called their sixth generation, um, going back from 2008, which was their first generation. And this is based on their 14 nanometer process node. So in terms of Intel architectures, it goes Nahalem, Sandy Bridge, Ivy Bridge, Haswell, Broadwell, Skylake. And then the next one we're told should be Carby Lake, but I'll come to that in a bit. Um, but Skylake launched, te- te- technically launched, um, first week of August at Gamescom on the 5th of August. Um, Intel's play here is that the CPUs that they launched on that date were the overclocking gaming focused processors although uh, you speak to a lot of people who actually want the, this stuff and they can't find any for sale and speaking to system integrators they've only had a few into stock and they tend to end up going into pre-built systems which gets them better margins anyway so but technically two cpus are out as we're currently speaking uh the i7 6700k which is the high-end SKU, which is quad core with hyper threading 4 gigahertz base clock 4.2 gigahertz turbo so the difference between base and turbo is is essentially non-existent there uh, we also have the i5 6600k which is just the quad core without hyper threading that's a bit lower in frequency so that's 3.5 gigahertz base to 3.9 gigahertz turbo but these two processors by virtue of being the k processors means that they're overclockable um and there are new features for the overclocking as well, which I'll get to in a bit. But for the the launch on August fifth, we uh, we had our review up online. Um, I, I I worked the uh, nineteen hours uh, previous to the launch time to actually get that out. So I'm quite glad that uh, we got that out, and uh, we had a, a lot of good responses to that review. But the take. I suggest you go read because we we tested uh, DDR4, DDR3, we tested IPC, we tested you know stock to stock performance, generational performance. Um, but if uh, there are a few headline messages that I think we should go over in the podcast, that's worth mentioning. Um, so one of the benchmarks for new processors is always how well they did compared to the previous architecture and the previous generation and going back. And so what we normally do is we test the processors processors at the same frequency, at the same core count, at the same memory frequency where possible. I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. And you essentially take, you know, the new processor and the last generation processor and as many as far back as time dictates because the way these processes are sampled typically gives us a week or two at most to be able to test. But I, I went back to Sandy Bridge. So that's the 2600, i7-2600K, the i7-3770K for Ivy Bridge, the i7-4770K for Haswell, the i7-5775C for Broadwell, which is actually just launched two months previous. Um, which is odd in itself, but there we go. So we tested those processors, tested them all at 3 gigahertz, uh, 
Um, and the end result is the instructions per clock. So this is how fast can the CPU go through instructions at the same frequency. Um, it, the, the result was that Skylake, the new processors, were 5.76% better than Haswell. Now, technically, Haswell is two generations before Skylake, and, I'll, and the reason why I quoted the number from Haswell is because the generation in the middle isn't really available anywhere um, because it was such a short-lived uh, generation, in a sense. But compared to, compared to that fifth generation, to the new sixth generation, it's only 3%. Now, this is, this is slightly odd because um, historically when we discuss Intel architectures... We, we we expect a few things. Um, so Intel updates its architectures either by reducing the processing node size. So when we say it's 14 nanometer, that's the uh, smallest pitch between uh, transistors and wires that you can get within the processor. So moving from, say, a 22 nanometer node to a 14 nanometer node, Intel typically does this with the same architecture slash minor updates, but the the benefit of doing that jump is less power and more more CPUs per wafer. Intel in, Intel with a fixed cost can produce more chips per wafer, which raises their bottom line. Now, when we do, a, say, a 22 nanometer to a 14 nanometer jump, we expect the increase in performance for the same clock, the IPC, to be small because we're essentially dealing with the same underlying principles for each processor. So when we change from a brand new architecture so going from the Broadwell processor to the Skylake processor the 5th gen to the 6th gen both of these are at 14 nanometer so Skylake has a new architecture and when we speak about new architectures Intel the general consensus is that Intel is usually good for about 10% 5 to 10% is usually what they quote um, there have been instances in the past where Intel's gone up 25-30% because they've done drastic paradigm changing into what actually happens at the transistor level. So we were expecting 5-10% to and we got 3%. So that was a little underwhelming um, at the high level. There, there are reasons why it's only 3% at the high level and it all comes back down to the fact that Intel has almost no competition at this space. At the uh, at the ninety watt around the ninety watt processor space, so Intel doesn't need to do everything they can at this space to essentially get market share because they already own the market in that space. But also, when it comes to broad Haswell, Broadwell, and Skylake, um, Intel is actually doing a mobile first strategy. So when you design a processor, you aim for a particular power band. Um, so if you want to produce a 15-watt processor, say like AMD's Carrizo processor is aimed at 15 watts, then you design it so it performs the best, you get the best gain at 15 watts, and everything beyond that becomes slightly less efficient. Now, if you're, go if you're designing a 15-watt processor and then you stick it at 90 watts, it's obviously not going to be as efficient, especially if the previous generation was designed for, say, 45 watts and you move it to 90 watts. So there's a little bit of that going on. Um, but as a result, IPC increase of 3% over Broadwell and, say, 6% over Haswell wasn't really what people expected. Um, but that, 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 that's, that's, IP, that's IPC. 
people don't run these processes comparison IPC they just use them out of, out of the uh, out of the box and if we did a box you know out of the box to out of the box performance comparison um purely in the CPU tests uh, that we performed we got a 20% gain over from Haswell to Skylake and a almost a 40% gain going from Sandy Bridge to Skylake or if you want to go even further back uh, Linfield we saw a 100% gain versus the i7-860. So if you're purely using the processor out the box for CPU applications, um, there is there can be some obvious benefits even going from Haswell. Um, though if you look at the gaming performance, uh, the gaming performance difference was negligible, even to the point where Skylake had a slight regression. But I'll, I'll get on to that in a bit. I want to talk about that in a bit. But in terms of, uh, so Skylake, what was launched? So we have an i7-6700K processor, an i5-6600K processor. Normally a launch contains i7s, i5s, i3s, Pentium, Celeron. Uh, we had Broadwell Core M last year. We have Xeons and everything else. Well, the ones that haven't been released will be released in the near future. We got a lot of information back at IDF, some of which we can talk about, some of which we can't talk about yet. Though, you know, expect it by the end of the year for sure. Uh, let's just talk about that performance again for a second, because like you said, the IPC is, is negligible, but the fact that uh, clock for clock, it's, you know, sorry, stock for stock, um, you know, running them at stock speed, it's significantly quicker than Haswell. Um, it's pretty impressive, and it just, I think it shows the the push to mobile um, has had a big gain there because, you know, now they can run their turbo frequencies for longer and, for, you know, faster. Uh, it's, it's pretty impressive, you know, 37% over the 2600K Sandy Bridge, which is one that I think people really, uh, really like that processor. So that's a big jump over Sandy Bridge. In our review, we, um, I said that, you know, perhaps this is the time to upgrade from uh, Sandy Bridge. It, CPU performance was a part of the reason why I said that, and um, the chipset was the other part. I'll talk about the chipset in a little bit. But a lot of the comments we got back essentially said, I see no reason to upgrade, I see no reason to upgrade. And the reason why people are saying that is because the gaming performance was essentially the same. And for a lot of people who you know comment on an Antec and comment on Reddit and everything else, gaming is mostly what they're doing. Very few people are, say, doing video transcoding or uh, requiring their processor to work at a high rate for a long period of time. I wonder how we're going to do with... Uh, we just talked about DirectX 12 in uh, Windows 10. Probably you'll have to come back to this once we get you know, some more benchmarks or even the ashes of the singularity. Perhaps we can uh, you know, try Sandy Bridge versus uh, Skylake and just see. Because that, you'd think... Now that the CPU is able to do more, uh, it might make a bigger difference. And well, well so, so, so that's related to DirectX 12 um, allowing each CPU core to essentially issue its own work to the GPU, rather than previously with DirectX 11, you were tie tying up one core essentially with all the work. DirectX 11 had some API settings where you could spread that out a little, but DirectX 12 makes that fully parallel. So yeah, there, when, when, I guess when you're in a 
CPU limited gaming scenario in DirectX 12. Well, you could argue that DirectX 12 brings the CPU less out of the equation because you can use all, you know, all four cores, all eight cores, all eight threads. So, I mean, if you speak to AMD, they say DirectX 12 is great because it levels the playing field for gaming. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. No, that's true. Uh, I'm curious to see how this works out. You know, there, there, there is performance for CPU limited workloads and, a lot of people don't seem to realize that the uh, in the business segment, in the enterprise segment, if you're doing CPU-limited work, and that's directly tied to any projects you're running, now projects equals money. So if you can run a project 20% faster, and it only costs, you know, 300 bucks to upgrade, and that means that in three projects you'll make that money back, then it's it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer type of upgrade. But you have to be in that position where... You know, there's a direct benefit to the extra CPU performance, and it's even more obvious when there's a financial incentive to upgrade. I mean, it's the reason why financial markets always buy the fastest processor out there, because if you're making, you know, millions per hour, then uh, getting the best hardware isn't a problem. Um, but, you know, say, say you work at a photo shop, and uh, a lot of your work, you know, deals with, uh, composing images and the faster that happens the more clients you can go through then you know 20 percent performance if you're not already on the extreme platforms can make sense but actually with that the skylake process architecture comes with a couple of new add-ons that also have to be applied in order to be able to use skylake so the first of which is the uh this new chipset so in in computer land, chipset essentially means how you deal with all your input and output. So this is where all your USB ports, all your SATA ports, and uh, extra PCIe slot, extra PCIe ports lanes come into play. And what the new chipset does is, you now have 26 high-speed I/O lanes. This is split such that six are USB and 20 can be essentially PCIe. Now, on the previous chipset, on the previous platform, you only had 8. So we're moving from 8 to 20, but we're not only moving from 8 to 20, we're moving from PCIe 2 to PCIe 3. So you you have 20 PCIe 3.0 lanes off the chipset. This is technically split into five controllers with four lanes each, and each of those controllers can either have by one, by one, by one, by one, by two, by two, or by four, or essentially any combination of one, two, and four that adds up to four. And with these extra PCI lanes, you can have extra SATA controllers, you can have extra PCI ports, you can have extra network controllers, you can have PCIe storage, so that's M.2 or U.2 or SATA Express. And when you have 20 lanes to play with, you can essentially do any combination you want, and as long as you're prepared to invest the money into the motherboard design, then you can find a motherboard with exactly what you need. Now, on the previous generation, because it only had eight lanes, there was there were issues when you had multiple multiple sets of these features. So say you had a SATA Express and an M.2 and a PCIe by four slot on board, sometimes you'd have to disable one in order to use the others. So while you bought all the features, you couldn't use them all at the same time. With the new Z170 chipset, Assuming the motherboard manufacturers have done it correctly, you should essentially be able to use a lot more at once. So, for example, there are ASRock boards, 
out in the market with uh, three M.2 slots, and they're all PCIe 3x4. So that's the fastest M.2 standard you can get. You can buy the fastest M.2 drive, and you can have three of them. And then you can still have you know, your graphics cards. You can still have all your SATA drives. You can still have all your network ports. And uh, the Z170 chipset really sort of blows it up. Now, one of the things that the chipset has to do is also communicate with the processor. The way the CPU and the processor communicate is through the DMI link. Now, on the previous generation, this was a DMI 2.0 link, which is essentially four lanes of PCIe 2.0 running at 5 gigatransfers per second. With Skylake, this goes up to 8 gigatransfers per second, which is essentially a PCIe 3 0.0 by 4 link. So one of the issues that a a few commenters came back with is, well, okay, so I have 20 PCIe lanes on my chipset, but my pipe going to the CPU is only 4 wide. Doesn't that implement the bottleneck? And yes, technically it does. However, how often are you going to be filling that pipe with data all the time? Unless you're doing multiple file transfers across the... uh, you know, requiring access to main memory to the drives that you have installed, you're not going to fill that pipe. And if you're talking from one drive to another that is connected through the 20 PCIe lanes, well, it's not going to go to the processor at all. It's just going to essentially act like a PCIe switch, like a PLX switch, uh, for those who know about the PLX switch, switches in previous motherboards. So what you have here is essentially a big PCIe switch. Uh, in the past, I've called it essentially a big FPGA um, because motherboard manufacturers can essentially do almost any design that they want within the, their price budget. So for me, the Z170 chipset is a reason to buy Skylake, especially if you want to invest in the latest storage technologies, if you want uh, a motherboard, say, with more network connectivity. There's going to be plenty of place options in the future. Basically, if you think of anything you can do over a PCIe lane, then a chipset should help you do that. But there, there is... Uh, the, the the chipset comes with a feature called Microphone Direct Attach, um, which is going to be useful for tablets and all-in-ones, um, because this means that the system can wake on... Uh, can be activated by wake-on voice, without firing up an audio codec, so that saves some power. Along with the PCIe lanes, uh, most motherboards will come with uh, US- a USB 3.1 controller to supply you two USB 3.1 ports. Now, I'm going to say that technically these are called USB 3.1 Generation 2. Uh, so, according to uh, USB-IF, the, uh, the foundation that arranges these specifications... There is no longer anything called USB 3.0. You see the USB 3.1 Generation 1, which is super speed or 5 gigabit per second, or there's USB 3.1 Gen 2, which is super speed plus, which is 10 gigabit per second. So we're talking about controllers that do the latter. And the controllers that you'll see on these motherboards will either come from Asmedia as the ASM 1142, or the Intel's Alpine Ridge controller, uh, which also supports Thunderbolt in some situations, but from what we've been told, they're 
are some issues with the Alpine Ridge controller, either firmware or actually silicon, we're not entirely sure. But in terms of Thunderbolt connectivity, you'll have to wait a few months for those to come out. There is one issue that's worth mentioning when it comes to you know the Z170 chipset, is that there is no EHCI driver. Now, for most people, that will mean nothing. But the short the short answer is Windows 7 installation now is a pain. <laughs> if you want to install Windows 7 on a Skylake-based Z170 motherboard, it's a pain because this essentially disables your USB ports when you try to install the operating system. Now, so you can't use a mouse, you can't use a keyboard to go through the menu to essentially be able to do do the installations. The motherboard manufacturers themselves have kind of found a way around this. Uh, they can inject the correct driver at the BIOS time, but only if you're running Windows 7. If you're trying to do it with Windows 8, it it won't play ball. So if you're trying to install Windows 7, you have to adjust a BIOS setting. It's going to be different for each manufacturer when it comes to our Z170 reviews. I'll be pointing it out in each review. Um, but ASRock will have their way, ASUS will have their way, Gigabyte will have their way, MSI will have their way, EVGA will have their way. But you just enable this option and go to install your operating system. But the second caveat is you have to install it by CD. Even though you change this option to enable you know, the USB interface to work with the mouse and keyboard, it still doesn't allow data-based USB drives now as a hardware tester for me installing by usb is you know the way it happens because usb is faster and it just makes everything a bit easier but i had to find a spare dvd <laughs> make sure my dvd burner worked and um, essentially fire my iso onto a dvd and now i have to install windows 7 by DVD onto a Skylake platform. It's it's not going to affect that many people. I mean, system integrators will, at the end of the day, be putting everybody onto Windows 10 anyway. Um, Windows 8 works. Windows 8.1 works. Uh, the only people really concerned with Windows 7 on Skylake will be those who really hate Windows 10 or overclockers who find that Windows 7 is more efficient in some benchmarks. But that's that's just a caveat, and that's essentially Intel's way of saying upgrade to the latest because you know we can ensure compa ensure compatibility and security and everything else. Another aspect of the Skylake system is uh, DDR4 support, so this is the next generation of memory. Uh, so we go from DDR3 to DDR4. DDR4 is a lower voltage. Um, it also is more stable by virtue of having a uh, voltage leveling across each uh, IC on the memory. This this just means that instead of uh, having a voltage drop across the whole memory module, you have a voltage drop per IC and it rebalances per IC, uh, which for most people won't change anything. But in certain circumstances where you're perhaps you know on the limits of you know, the thermal environment or what have you, or overclocking, this can help with stability. But the Skylake processor itself, the uh, well, at least the, the desktop Skylakes that have been launched, 
are DDR4 and DDR3L. So they technically have either one memory controller that does both or two separate memory controllers. We haven't been able to confirm that from Intel because nobody will tell us. But essentially, you're, the, if the processor can support DDR4 and DDR3L, if you have a motherboard that has DDR3L slots or DDR4 slots, you can essentially put the right memory in. Now, the reason why they've chosen DDR3L, so the L means low voltage, low power, rather than the straightforward DDR3 specifications, is because DDR3L runs at 1.35 volts, and DDR4 runs at 1.2 volts, so they're essentially, you know, similar within margins. If they had to support DDR, if they had to support DDR3 at 1.5 volts, or the you know, the increased voltage specification for DDR3 at 1.65 volts, this could cause compatibility. So perhaps under that understanding, they're probably doing a single memory controller that supports both. But, um, so we have tested DDR3L and DDR4 um, on the i7-6700K, and by and large, they performed essentially the same. Um, DDR, there were some instances where actually the DDR4 memory gave... A 10% boost in a benchmark result. Plus, DDR4 also allows you know higher higher density modules. So you'll see 16 gigabyte modules for DDR4 in the market. But it does mean you have to buy them. I mean, if if people are upgrading from a DDR3 system, unless you have DDR3L, you essentially can't use your DDR3. Yeah, which you probably don't have, right? Most people wouldn't have it, although it is pretty popular in laptops. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I will say this. For, for our testing, I did actually take a DDR3 kit, and I reduced the voltage. So I was able to keep it stable down at a lower voltage, so I was able to do my test. So if you're if you're fine with lowering the voltage of your memory in the BIOS, then you can use a DDR3 kit, as long as the motherboard supports DDR3L. Now, I have heard that some motherboard manufacturers are trying to claim DDR3 support by um, some sort of transformer chip on board, though, which, manuf- uh, as far as I understand, the, which manufacturers are planning to do this, it may not, may not be 100%, and the DDR3 kits will definitely not be in the qualified vendor lists of, excuse me, of uh, hardware that the... Uh, that the system supports. So we will see motherboards being launched later this year with both DDR3L and DDR4 slots, or we'll see DDR4 only, or we'll see DDR3L only. Um, but chances are you'll see the DDR3L, any board with DDR3L, even if it's in conjunction with DDR4, it'll probably be on the cheaper, on the budget motherboards. And there, there is there is also one other caveat: you can't use DDR3L and DDR4 on the same system at the same time. You you can only use one or the other. But we will see some motherboards with four slots of one and two slots of the other. Um, but the same thing happened during the DDR2 to DDR3 transition, right? We saw some motherboards that supported both, and they just ended up generally being the cheaper motherboards. So that's fine. Yeah, certainly not the first time I recall having a motherboard with EDO RAM and SD RAM slots on the same board, and it's just exactly the same. You couldn't use them both, but you could reuse your EDO RAM, or you could upgrade SD RAM. So I think this is the right way to go. It makes a lot of sense. It's going to be a little cheaper for the initial part, and uh, people will be able to upgrade, possibly keeping their memory. So 
Uh, obviously, I would say on uh, Cobby Lake, this is probably going to go away. Yeah, yeah. Future Intel systems won't support DDR3L at all. That's that's what we would assume. Um, but in terms of more more Skylake stuff, so the Skylake processor itself, the 2K SKUs both have integrated graphics. These are technical Generation 9 graphics. And they're a slight upgrade over Generation 8, um, at least for these parts. Um, we saw some interesting stuff about stuff that's coming forward, um, but when that comes out, we'll let you know. But the graphics for Sky, for the uh, Skylake K processors that have launched, they're technically GT2, which in Intel's naming scheme is the, is, is essentially the middle part for integrated graphics. This is Intel HD 530. This means 24 execution units, uh, using 8 execution units per slice, so that's the same sort of configuration as Generation 8. Um, but Generation 9 contains more fixed function hardware. So this means the ability to do certain things on graphics, do certain things that would normally be done on the graphics uh, streaming processes, on the graphics execution units, but actually having a specific integrated circuit inside the processor to do it at much low power and much higher efficiency. So for those who are not au fait with processor design, a general a general purpose processor is meant to essentially take anything that's thrown at it. But if you can characterize your workload in such a way that it's consistent and the processor will expect the same thing every time, you can generate a very miniaturized circuit at a much lower power or a much higher performance, but it can only deal with that specific set of commands. Now, things like video playback is going to be a very specific set of commands. You're going to have to display it in ATP on the display, on, on, on the monitor. So that is not going to change. I mean, the data packets themselves will change based on whether you're watching a film or cartoon or whatever. But the point of fixed function hardware means you can things do things like video decode or video encode at much lower power, much higher performance. So the Generation 9 graphics includes, say, HEVC encode and decode. Now, Ganesh has done an extensive uh, overview of the media capabilities of the the Skylake processors on Generation 9 graphics. So I suggest you go over there because he knows a whole lot more than me. <laughs> and we'll, st- we'll, we'll stick a link to the description of the podcast so uh, people can navigate straight to that. But if you're interested in how Generation 9 graphics changes uh, the media landscape for Skylake, head on over there. But one feature I would like to, a couple of features I'd like to mention at least on on the graphics is that uh, Generation Nine now implements multiplane overlay. Now, as a name, that doesn't sound like much, um, but this is something that essentially AMD announced back with Carrizo. When a when you have a display, and say say you're watching a 720p video at 1080p, that's you're essentially doing a stretch for the video and then watching the video. Now that stretch has to be computed. Now normally the way that would happen is that the it would go from you take your data, you'd move it into you'd move it into the DRAM, then you move it into the GPU to do the processing, then you move it back into the DRAM, then you do it to the display controller. So that's four steps twice into DRAM using the GPU. 
Now, what multiplay multiplane overlay does is it implements fixed function hardware in the display controller itself. So you just go from data to DRAM to display controller. Now this saves power, this saves bandwidth, and it makes it a lot more efficient. Now like I say, AMD, AMD is doing something similar on uh, Carrizo, but what this allow, the way that Intel has implemented it is that they have a sense, they can define the screen as having three distinct planes. So say the desktop, your, the active window, and the cursor. So it can take each three of those planes, those those three planes can change if you have say two windows or whatever. And it can do it can do stretch, it can do rotate, it can do specific functions on each of those layers, put them all together and then display without even touching the GPU. If it can do that, it'll do that. If 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 for some reason it can't do this, then it will will actually go to the GPU to do the uh, do the uh, you know the mathematical transformations. Now there were a few a couple of uh, presentations at IDF on this. So at the minute, three layers is the limit. Um, there's no there's no way for the GPU to detect whether one layer is being completely obscured. So say you have a window that a small window that's behind a big window that you don't need to notice, but it also has to, it will, the Gen 9 graphics will actually process that window despite it not being needed. So there is that, but we're told that the concept of multiplane overlay over generations will increase in both capacity and capability. But it's a, it's essentially a way of saving a lot of power, especially when it comes to low-powered systems or when you're battery limited. So I think that's quite cool. Um, also, Gen Generation 9 graphics will support HDMI 2.0, but only if a special bridge chip is used off of one of the display ports. So this is uh, LSPCon additional you know, chip that has to be used. Technically, you should be able to use an Alpine Ridge controller from Intel to do this, or a specific LSPCon from something else. Now, as far as we understand, the Alpine Ridge controller doesn't, at the minute, work in HDMI 2.0 mode, or there need to be some update or something. So we'll see them later down the road. Uh, but HDMI 2.0 means 4K over HDMI. Uh, this is technically in uh, HDCP 2.2 mode, because there are different HDMI 2.0 modes, but everything HDMI 2.0 on Skylake should be you know, HDCP 2.2. So that's the graphics. Um, we also did some overclocking on the Skylake processors. So we did both... In the original Skylake review, we did specific testing to see how far the overclock would go. And actually, today, today I posted an article about how performance changes as you overclock the processor. So... As always, go read a couple of those, but the brief overview is for Skylake, overclocking is improved and adjusted um, over previous generations. So with previous generations, you dealt with a multiplier for the and a base frequency. So you'd have, say, a multiplier of 40 and a base frequency of 100. So 40 times 100 gives you 4 gigahertz. That's still true in Skylake. However, the base frequency um, can now move in both negative and positive directions to any number. Well, Intel is stating, I think, about 300 
or 200 to 300 on their end, but the motherboard manufacturer can add in a bridge chip to allow up to 650, I think some motherboard manufacturers are claiming. Previously, in, in Haswell, previously, it would, uh, once you got to a certain number, the system would crash, but it wouldn't crash because the CPU couldn't handle it, it would crash because the base frequency was also tied to the SATA ports and the PCIe ports, and those would be what would fail. With Skylake, they're essentially completely separated. So your PCIe ports now have their own clock domain with the SATA ports, which is completely different to the timing domain for the processor. So now that now that they're essentially delinked, which opens up this range. Um, so now people can play with either multiplier or frequency. So that that that's that's fairly good. Um, on the memory side, we have more dividers. So instead of having dividers of 200 and 266 megahertz, we have 100 and 133 megahertz. That just means that we'll see uh, more more finely divided memory kits. So you can buy memory kits of uh, you know a greater range of frequencies. Um, we have seen the memory controller support you know go up to over 4,000 megahertz. So you'll be able to buy kits at least in the sort of 3,300, 3,500 range. I'm actually sitting two feet away from a kit that does 3,733 megahertz, though it only does that with two modules. And it only does that in certain boards, and it'll only do that with certain processors. But we're told by... We're told we're told by a couple of the motherboard manufacturers that every CPU that they've done internally testing will do DDR4-3200 um, which is impressive if you need d- extra DRAM performance. At some point in the future, I'll be doing a DRAM scaling article just to see, you know, how much DRAM performance matters because we tested it on Haswell E, which also used DDR4, and it didn't accept in, say, WinRAR. Um, but Skylake is integrated graphics, so we'll see if it makes a difference there. But in terms of overclocking, actually what you can get, um, in our original review, we tested four processors, uh, four 6700Ks, and three of them did 4.6 gigahertz, and one of them did 4.5. And this was kind of in line with what we had heard from both Intel and the motherboard manufacturers anyway. Just to clarify, three of, they were all samples that were retail stepping, but only one of them was actually a retail processor. So we had three engineering samples, but those engineering samples had the exact same configuration and silicon as a retail sample. So for all intents and purposes, they're, they, they're the same as what you should be getting at home. But fast forward two weeks to the extra testing that just went live, and I've got two pro- two of those processors can now do 4.8 gigahertz. It's essentially stable. Stable in all but one test. Now, the question of stability is a different topic altogether. But they they, they, they failed in... 4K transcoding, but they passed a mixed AVX load, which is usually pretty stressful anyway. So, for for my for my purposes, they were you know stable for gaming and everything else. But 4.8 gigahertz is kind of fun. We uh we saw we we last saw those numbers in Sandy Bridge. So the fact that there's a 200 megahertz gap between our initial review and what we did now um, is probably just due to BIOS maturity. The motherboard manufacturers are learning more about the processors as they go on. Now, technically, I also did test these in two different motherboards. So, um, 
it could have just been that my mo- the motherboard that I used for the first review just wasn't up to speed on overclocking. But chances are it's going to be, you know, a more mature BIOS helps with the overclock. And I said that at the be- at, in our launch review that over time we should see it creep up. But in terms of overclocks that you should get at home, both both at, well our testing and what Intel says and what a couple of the motherboard manufacturers are saying is that most CPUs should see 4.5, 4.6, and there'll be less variability. Um, so with Haswell, with the 4770Ks, there were some stinkers. I mean, CPUs that would barely overclock 200 megahertz. But with this, you should see a much wide, uh, you should see a much higher base frequency that all CPUs can get. And then, you know, as you go up to try and get 5 gigahertz, um, that's where the variation will be. But everybody should be happy with about 4.6, I think. There are some package differences with the processor with Skylake, um, which re- pertains to overclocking. So I'll link to this article as well. Uh, this is done. This was an article based on some work done by a famous overclocker called Splave, who normally takes a lot of memory-based benchmarks, world records, um, but he essentially delidded his uh, Skylake processor. Um, so from that, we actually got you know die sizes and everything else. But it turns out that the package that the processor is in has reduced down from seven PCB layers to four PCB layers, um, which we think is due to the fact that the processor no longer has an integrated voltage regulator. But it does mean that if you are going to delid your processor... Um, Using a vice is perhaps not advised because there's a chance that you could damage... You're more likely to damage the thinner PCB um, of the processor. But in terms of uh, de-lidding the processor itself um, with a razor blade, seems fine. Um, There is an issue with the thermal interface material again. Um, We saw on Haswell that the thermal interface material... Thermal interface material combined with the distance from the die to the heat spreader was abysmal. And by replacing that, you could get an extra you know, 10 to 15 degrees. And with Haswell, it's the same. You can get an extra 10 to 15 degrees by replacing the thermal paste. And I actually have, from IDF now, a spare Skylake processor. So I ordered some kit this week, which should be arriving next week. So if I can put together... A my experiences with deleting Skylake performance overview. I'm, I'll write that up, do some testing, write it up, and post it. Um, but that should be that should be interesting. Now, what one of the things we found out with the overclocking um, was actually when you overclock the processor, the performance of the integrated graphics decreases. Now, arguably, you could say that because the um, overclocking processors aren't built on integrated graphic fill integrated graphics in mind that that doesn't matter um, but essentially if you move up to 4.4 gigahertz 4.6 gigahertz 4.8 gigahertz the automatic um, frequency of the integrated graphics is lowered um, just to maintain sort of a power balance like a seesaw basically um, and in order to get over that you have to essentially fix the graphics frequency so in our latest overclock testing um, I tested 4.2, 4.4, 4.6, and 4.8 gigahertz on the processor. And then going from auto to 1200, 1300, uh, 1350, and 1250 megahertz on the integrated graphics, 
and when you fix that frequency, the integrated graphics um, performance is then you know fixed and doesn't decrease with increasing frequency. So if you're using things like QuickSync, or when DirectX 12 comes along and you want to use the Intel graphics in a dual graphics combination um, based on the uh, multi-adapter thing, then there's there's something to think about there. One thing that did come out of the overclocking was the voltage. Um, the motherboard, the in our launch review, our processes varied from say 1.26 to 1.36 volts automatic at load, um, which for a 14 nanometer processor typically would ring alarm bells for most people. Um, but to be honest, the temperatures were nice and low. From what we could tell, uh, we still need temperature software to catch up with Skylake but from what we could tell temperatures were fine because we were still able to get a very large uh, you know, frequency gain when overclocking there are people saying that if you run it at that voltage for too long then it will degrade the processor um, now to be honest increasing the voltage obviously increases you know the square of the power usage of the processor so the more you overclock the more of a problem it's going to be and very few people overclock to the you know the the right to the edge of the processor for twenty four seven use. So you know find the maximum for your processor, then dial it back a little bit, and you should be fine. Um, if there are going to be degrading issues, um, we'll see it when more people can get hold of the processor. Like I said before, it's still not necessarily in the markets right now. Um, at least not in full volume. So as as more get out there, we'll see more people actually overclocking this thing. But if you ultimately that worried, delete your processor, even though you lose the warranty. Technically, you lose the warranty with overclocking anyway. But that that is overclocking Skylake in a nutshell. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the architecture itself. Um, we were given quite a lot of architecture details at IDF. Which is all in the uh, public domain. Um, you can go down, you can go and read the uh, presentations on the IDF website. Um, we are going to do a breakdown of the architecture article in due course. Um, that that's that's my job to do over the weekend, actually. So uh, there are a few things that are worth mentioning, at least in the podcast, before we get to the main analysis. Um, but Skylake, apart from being built mobile first. Um, is designed to extract parallelism, parallelism more, which means that the CPU can hold more data in flight. So when the CPU gets a bunch of it, gets a bunch of instructions to process, and say it needs to stall certain data in order to be able to fetch it from different parts of the processor, it can do more of that at once. And it can hold more data. That's basically one of the reasons why Skylake is built. It's to, it's, it's to allow more things to be done at the same time, or at least more data to be held at the same time in the buffers. Um, that's obviously a high-level explanation of what it actually does. But at the end of the day, this means that you should end up with better multi-threaded performance where you are limited by how much data you can store on the fly um, our results show this in things like Cinebench um, and especially in things such as uh, Hybrid RX265 um, encoder did got a massive speed up 
Um, I think that was one of the biggest speed-ups that contributed to the IBC increase. So uh, that was quite impressive there. Um, in terms of the front-end, back-end of the micro-architecture, we can now um, issue issue more micro-commands, micro-operations um, per cycle, and we can retire more micro-operations per cycle. Uh, th th this just means that when when there is a bunch of code that is split up into its micro-operations. Firstly, the uh, micro-operation micro store, that's where you, know, the, where you can organize your out-of-order execution, means that essentially you can have more instructions, but you can also issue more instructions into that queue at once, which, if you're able to process those instructions, increases. But also, when an instruction is then used, it has to be retired um, and in some situations, the you're limited by how many instructions you can retire from that cache, from that queue at once. So Skylake helps essentially push out those um, used used instructions that are no longer needed, um, that aren't also predicted to be used in the future. Uh, obviously, processes are very complicated to how they do logic, but that's one of the advantages of Skylake. So you've got more load and store bandwidth, improved page mishandling. So when the processor needs data, uh, if it's not in where it expects and it needs to extend further out into you know the caches and everything, that is better better handled. Um, specifically dealing with the L2 cache. Now we didn't mention it in our initial review at the time because to be honest, we didn't notice it at the time, but. The L2 cache, um, now caches have a thing called associativity, which is basically, you know, how the data is stored and accessed. And when you increase the associativity, you technically increase the power draw. You maybe increase the die area, but you improve, you improve the, uh, cache hit rate, so you get less cache misses. So it's essentially a powerful performance trade-off. If you double the associativity, you can get you know a better hit rate when you look out for memories. But what the L2 in Skylake does is it actually goes down in associativity from 8 to 4. Now the thing is with those associativity, 1 to 2 and 2 to 4 are big jumps. 4 to 8 is less of a has less of an effect. So you could argue that going down from 8 to 4 and losing that performance but saving the power has benefits, especially when you're in a low-powered system, which, going back to Skylake being mobile-focused, uh, is important. But what Intel is saying is that despite the move from an eight-way eight associative cache to a four-way associative cache, despite the decrease in performance due to more cache misses, the mishandling and um, the way it does the branch prediction for the L2 is actually improved. So... The, the loss in performance is l less than one would expect. And in most circumstances, people won't notice it. Um, so that's interesting in itself. Um, Skylake also has a feature called Speed Shift. This is going to be a more mobile-focused feature, but essentially means it can change frequency quicker. So currently, it re the how a processor changes, or how Haswell changes frequency, is the operating system tells the process to change frequency which requires it going through a hardware layer and a software layer and that latency is about 
uh, I think they said 30, 30 microseconds, 30 milliseconds, 30 whatevers anyway. Um, and what SpeedShift does is that it essentially allows the OS to hand off the change in frequency to the hardware itself, you know, so the hardware has a range, the OS can limit that range and then send that back to the hardware and say, okay, you deal with this now. You need OS support and uh, Windows 10 will support it in due course. But the way Intel tried to teach it to us via analogy is that imagine a car turning around a corner. Uh, turning around a hairpin, so a very sharp 180-degree turn. Um, if you're able to change your speed faster around the turn, then you get around the turn quicker. Otherwise, you have to turn your speed down early in order to make the corner and everything else, essentially breaking later into a corner. This is how, obviously, that's a very crude analogy. Um, but the idea is that with this, a processor can speed up quicker, can power down quicker, um, you know, just saving power when stuff isn't needed, especially when you consider that the processor itself has uh, a variety of power and frequency domains, uh, which with Skylake has increased, so there are more things that can be turned off when they're not needed, rather than waiting, having to keep those powered on because something else attached to it is being used. So speed shift is essentially a power play, and uh, people will notice the difference more in bursty workloads. So something like a PC Mark 8 benchmark um, will see more difference than a Cinebench. This should be fairly important in the laptop space. I mean, with the with the released chips so far, probably, like you said, the uh, it's like 4 to 4.2 gigahertz is the range right now anyway. So, but I mean, once we see some... Core M or whatever. I mean, the the range on Core M on Broadwell was, I think, like 1.7 gigahertz difference, 1.2 to 2.9. So it's, I imagine it's going to make some pretty drastic uh, performance differences on Core M. Yeah, yeah. Um, SpeedShift also, you know, it blurs the line with what P states are as well. So, excuse me, there's some translation to do there as well. So when people naturally think of P states for performance, speed shift will has will be a slight paradigm shift into how people think, especially yeah in those situations where your base frequency and your turbo frequency is a factor three difference. So there's that. Um, architecture wise, there's also talk of um, Skylake with EDRAM. So this is having a uh, on on package extra amount of memory that acts as an extra level of cache um, for the processor so you don't have to go out to main memory as much now this has benefits mostly in from our perspective in integrated graphics but also certain workloads can improve um, by this and all the broadwell desktop processors broadwell h processors all had edram even though that you know you can barely buy them but with with Skylake, we'll see a couple of um, EDRAM processors, we believe, at some point. Um, but the public information essentially means that the EDRAM is more more transparent to the system. So previously, it was basically tacked on as a level four cache as part of the core, um, requiring some extra tags 
and everything else and some, some diarrhea to deal with there. With, uh, Skylake, this changes. So now, instead of it being, you know, attached to the, attached to the L3, um, before, it's now between, uh, the system agent and the DRAM. Now this means that any access to, any access to DRAM has to go through the EDRAM. So it has to go through this small buffer. Um, which on Broadwell was 128 megabytes. So this means that the uh, EDRAM is now transparent to software, so you don't have to worry about it, and it should speed more things up, essentially. So previously, when it's part of a core, say you had um, a USB device that needed to, needed DRAM. Um, previously, in Broadwell, it would just go straight to DRAM, because it never needed to touch the core. It would just go through the system agent into DRAM. With uh, with this arrangement now, it would go through the EDRAM, which uh, should help in, you know, increase latency and bandwidth if anything is then needed to be used by the processor. Um, so that that's an that's a interesting addition to the EDRAM space, and the idea is that it should become easier to use as a result, because it's essentially the stepping stone to DRAM rather than it being the last stepping stone of internal core memory. So we've, we've talked a lot about Skylake, especially in terms of uh, the desktop processors, because they're the ones out, even though we've said that Skylake is a mobile-first mobile, mobile first, uh, architecture. Now, the mobile parts, so Skylake Y, which is Core M, Skylake U, which is the 15-watt parts and 28-watt parts, and Skylake uh, H, the 45-watt parts. They're coming soon. Um, we can't tell you when. Soon. By the end of the year. Uh, but lo- there were lots of ID- details at IDF, and let's say some of those were behind closed doors, but there was enough information, I think, in the presentations, um, if you're willing to go look around them. The, the Skylake K processors, the ones that are currently out, didn't impress many people, um, except if you're CPU bound. Um, but it, from our perspective, we thought it was a good upgrade from Sandy Bridge because of the upgraded chipset and uh, the increase in DRAM density to DDR4. But the focus with Skylake is definitely going to be on the power. Um, we'll see that with the, mo- with the mobile platforms later. Now, in addition to all of all of this. Skylake will be introducing uh, a new Xeon platform in the mobile space. So previously, in order to get a Xeon processor into a notebook, you had to essentially put a desktop processor into a notebook, which meant that Xeon mobile platforms were big, thick, and chunky. And so some of the big, some of the SIs that did the modular designs, um, Eurocom cut springs to mind, maybe even Clevo. Uh they produced uh Xeon based workstations, um mobile workstations that relied on desktop processors. Now what Intel is doing with Skylake is they will launch um E three twelve hundred V five M or twelve hundred M V five processors. So there are actually going to be um either fifteen, twenty eight or forty five watt um, they didn't announce which at the time, but we should see be able to see Xeons with, say, ECC memory and vPro in much thinner form factors. 
Well, Lenovo's already announced one, actually, that workstation. Uh, it's going to have this Eon mobile processor, and I think it's coming out in October, is what Lenovo said. They didn't give any specifics about the CPU, but it's going to be that uh, mobile Xeon with ECC memory. So, I mean, it's, I think it's a good step. I mean, it's a smart step. It's hard to believe it wasn't here before. Well, for, for me, I'm just thinking, well, hey, let's have a Mac Pro, MacBook Pro. Hey, is that name still in use? Yeah, it is. So, okay, so, you know, something like the Mac Pro, but mobile, Xeon, 32 gigabytes of memory, ECC, and a Pro graphics card, but based on, you know, OS X. That's something you should think about. Well, hey, <laughs> hey, did, 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 didn't Apple just announce an event in sept- on September 9th? I wonder what we'll see there. I, I doubt that'll be there, but you never know. Well, uh, I think I think Josh is Josh is, Josh is due to cover that event, so uh, look forward to see what they got there. But in terms of the Skylake stuff, we'll keep you posted uh, when information comes out. But uh, stay tuned for that big Skylake deep dive. As much information as we could squeeze out of Intel and everybody else uh, for you. That's coming soon. Uh, so to finish off, um, so when we do this podcast, we obviously have an agenda, and the last element on the agenda is something I want to talk about for five minutes, and that's uh, what happens after Skylake. Um, so Intel have been running, was it the past 10 years, on a, on what's called a TikTok model. So that's uh, that goes with uh, architecture, uh, process no change, architecture change, process no change, architecture change. And obviously we talked about the IPC increases uh, for each of those. But with 14 nanometer, they've gone Broadwell, Skylake, and we would expect the next one to be a 10 nanometer platform. But they've announced that actually instead of going, you know, 22, 22, 14, 14, 10, 10, they're going to go 22, 22, 14, 14, 14. So there's going to be a third uh, generation on 14 nanometer. And this is called depending on how you want to pronounce it, KB Lake or Carby Lake. Now, at IDF, one person, one Intel person said Carby Lake, another one said KB Lake, so goodness knows, I'm sure there'll be a presentation exactly how to pronounce it. Um, but uh, 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 I initially said KB Lake, um, but when I first heard it at IDF, they said Carby Lake, so who knows. But this is this is essentially the, 40, the third processor generation of 14 nanometer, and this is just because as you move down in process node, it gets progressively more difficult to uh, produce silicon that meets your yield expectations. I mean, with 14 nanometer, we had a massive delay, right? Yeah, Broadwell started with Core M and it was, I mean, it was late. And then, I mean, we didn't even get, basically didn't even get desktop chips on Broadwell because 14 nanometer was so long. Uh, yeah, they're they're almost well you can't buy them so the f- the fact that moved to 10 nanometer has been it's essentially everybody now has an extra step now just to be cynical for a second um people complain that uh, the enterprise platform which is currently on uh, Haswell E so it's not even on Broadwell yet and we're already on Skylake on the desktop that there's that there's this there's this disparity so if we add in another 14 nanometer but we don't take Carby Lake to the Enterprise. It gives a chance for the Enterprise to catch up. Perhaps that's just me. <laughs> you know, I think one of the most interesting parts about this was that their announcement of it was actually during their financial results conference call. 
they they said that customers have, need they need a better uh, consistency on the on the platform. They need you know processors need to be out on a timely manner so that they can ramp up their production. And so they've decided to do another another step on 14 nanometer, which is I mean you'd think that this would have been a uh, business decision that came out through, you know, the tech side, but no, it, this is financially driven. And I, I think it makes a lot of sense on that side. The customers do need, you know, some stability there. Well, so to take the GPU space, did you, um, both in, both AMD and Nvidia have been on 28 nanometer for four generations. So, and that, that is again, purely a financial play because 20, 20 nanometer was expensive and died an expensive death. And we're expecting to see, you know, 60 nanometer GPUs next time around. As far as, as far as, you know, I've, I've read online. So having another, having another Intel generation at 14 nanometer. Now it does implement some interesting aspects when you consider, you know, are they going to be backwards compatible to Skylake? Or is it just, is it going to be, you know, a generation with a chipset on its own? Or when we go to 10 nanometer, will that actually also be? part of the same chipset or will they you know there, there's a lot of questions there which obviously intel are never going to answer until they actually launch the thing so but we un- we understand that it's essentially going to be you know sky almost skylake plus um slightly more than say what the devil's canyon processor was to haswell so that was essentially a haswell processor in a slightly better package and a slightly higher clock but fundamentally it was the same thing Carby Lake is meant to at least catch the low-hanging fruit uh, in terms of Skylake performance. At least that's what we—that's what we believe. Have you got anything further to add? No, not really. I mean, they didn't really announce much about it, but it is—it's a pretty big step to, you know, like you said, it's been I think almost ten years now on TikTok, and uh, now they've fallen off of that because, uh, like you said, it gets really, really difficult to uh to keep going forward with the smaller nodes. So there we go. Windows ten, Skylake, little bit of Carby Lake. You've been listening to the Nantet podcast, episode thirty five. We'll we'll catch you next time.